Well, hello, everyone. I am That Weems Guy here for yet another episode, and I'm actually very thrilled about this one, uh, just because of the chain of events that set this, this episode in motion. Uh, a few weeks ago, Cecil Birch was a guest, and he talked about his very first trip to Gunsight. And he mentioned that one of the instructors that day was Mr. Jerry McCall. And that was a name that I was not familiar with at the time. I've done a lot of reading on it since. And I made a comment, well, you know, I would sure love to talk to him. That, that would be somebody that would be great to have on the show. And, well, a listener, Mr. Ed Stock, heard, heard that and called Mr. McCown. And lo and behold, here is Mr. Jerry McCown. How are you doing, sir? Fine, thank you. Uh, it, is, it is an honor and a thrill to have you here. Uh, Cecil Birch was ecstatic when I, when I let him know what it all had happened and transpired. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, well, people have been telling me for years I should write a book, and I'm not going to write a book about gun sight, but I've got <laughs> lots of stories, uh, things that I witnessed uh, personally, things that other instructors have told me, uh, and, and other people that were in position to know things that, that happened have told me. So the information is going to be given out. It's not going to be all firsthand. It's going to be what right. what has gone in the rumor mill at the, at sure. the school, you know, the we could do a book on behind the behind the scenes at Gunsight for sure because it was a uh, uh, we, we've had a lot of uh, very colorful people up there, um, including Herschel Davis. And, you know, he was uh, one of the original SEALs from Vietnam, and uh, John Bowman, the two of them down in Florida. Uh, just a, a, a interesting group of people for sure. I imagine that it is very similar to what you would see in a squad room somewhere. Oh yes. Yes, absolutely. All right. If you would, uh, give the audience uh, an introduction. Just who is Jerry McCown? Jerry McCown mainly is a law enforcement officer, even though I haven't been one for many years. I was, I was a certified officer for 41 years, 28 with an agency full-time, retired from there at the rank of captain. I uh, went to another agency for another 13 years to help them out with their firearms training and their computer work. But during that time, I also went to the local college here where I developed a program called Law Enforcement Operations, which is advanced officer training. We did criminal investigation certificates, supervision certificates, uh, general instructor, firearms instructor, rifle instructor, uh, which I still teach those, uh, not the general instructor, but the rifle and the, and the firearms instructor for the college. So I was a program there I developed uh, and for another 13 years and then left from there. Um, my affiliation with Gunsight started in 1983. Well, actually it was before that because I read a lot about it and I read about, about uh, this place called the American Pistol Institute at, Gun, at Gunsight, Arizona. So I'm looking on the map trying to find Gunsight, Arizona. I can't find it anywhere. And I found out that it actually it was just a few miles from where my parents moved to in 1978. They moved up to uh, Paulden, Arizona. and so then I finally, in 1983, got to go to Gunsight. The main reason I went to Gunsight was because of Ed Stock, Giles Stocker's brother. Uh, Ed was a DPS officer, and his brother uh, Giles was a Phoenix officer. Then their other brother, Greg, that also taught at Gunsight, he was another Phoenix officer. And they had gone to Gunsight and found the things that they were teaching up there that was very different from what we were teaching at the time. And they brought it down to the valley of the, uh, in the Phoenix area. And they started giving classes to the local agencies in order to, to spread the knowledge. And so I wanted to go up. I, I had read a lot of Cooper's stuff 
Um, didn't agree with everything that he, that he was talking about, but okay, but I want to go see what he's, what he's teaching and, and how he's teaching it. So uh, 1983, I went up to Gunsight, took my first class, and it was an eye-opener for me. It really was, because prior to that, all of our, I, I was a NRA certified law enforcement firearm instructor in 1972. So from 72 to 83, I pretty much thought, well, I've, I've got it made. Till I, I got got to Gunsight and things changed a lot. Uh, they had a doctrine, which was something that that I uh, really hooked into in college. Well, we, it's like golf. You have a doctrine. This is this is the basics, and then according to your body style and and you, you know, you go away from the basics. But when you start when you run into trouble, you have a doctrine to go back to in order to start working things again. So, so that's one of the first things I, I hooked onto at Gunsight was the fact that they had a doctrine, something that you can start start at and if you had problems something that you could go back to and start again in order to correct things so um i took uh, three classes there and on the third class i was informed that jeff was looking at bringing me on staff and believe it or not mainly because of revolver work because i took my my first 250 and the 499 with my revolver and i got e-tickets on both of those the expert tickets for those and I uh, went back my, with my 1911 to learn how to shoot it. And that, that's when uh, Russ Showers, the operations officer at the time, told me that Jeff was looking at bringing me on staff. He wanted to see how I did with my 1911. And I went, you know, give me back my revolver. <laughs> uh, and I didn't do as well with the 1911, which I, which I knew I wasn't because I, that was a new gun for me. So went went from there. Um, so he brought me on staff mainly for the revolver work. In fact, I irritated a lot of students because uh, Jeff would start talking about how to run his 45, and he'd stop and say, "Oh, you, you revolver guys, uh, Jerry, take him down to the south range and and show him how to run a run a revolver." And so they're going, "I'm going to listen to Jeff." I go, "I know, I do too." But you know, <laughs> off, off we went to the south range, uh, and I'm a 499. I was back at the uh, you know the, the numbers is something interesting because people don't realize why we have numbers up there and we have grades and so forth. But Jeff became affiliated with Northern Arizona University in the, in the late 70s. And so people that were students at NAU could come out and take a gunsight class and they would get college credit for it. But he had to have class numbers and he had to have a, a rating system. So CC was, was like a D, uh, Marksman was a C, Marksman first class was a B, and expert was, a, was an A in the class. And 250 was a sophomore level class, and the 499 was, of course, a senior level class. And that's where the numbers and, and things started on, and it's, it's gone on since. Jeff didn't like having the, the different ratings, but he had to give ratings. And then once he did, all the students wanted to get rated by, by the school. So I was in my 499, my revolver, shooting at 50 yards from the prone position and shooting double action because we never allowed our officers to shoot single action. And so Jeff comes up behind me and goes like, no, 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 you, no, 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 you got to cock that, got to cock that. No. And I go, well, yeah, but they're there. Yeah, we'll see. And he went down and luckily that, that time I had the proverbial teacup size group back uh, there. And he was impressed with that. And I, I really think that that's the reason why I ended up becoming an instructor at Gunsight. So I taught my first classes there in 85 and I taught everything I taught 250. Uh, 250R at that time, which was remedial, because you if you didn't get a marksman one in your 250, then you had to come back for remedial before you go to 499. 
Now it's about 499s, uh, shotguns, did a lot of shotgun work with Louis Arbuck. Um, taught with uh, Robbie Barkman. In fact, I was in the same class. I was, I was teaching with Robbie when he met his wife, uh, who was with DOE there for a class. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of personalities came through. Yeah, I mentioned uh, Herschel Davis, you know, one of, the, one of the original SEALs from the Vietnam era. John Bowman, uh, people from all over the all over the country. Uh, Louie Arbuck was, of course, a very interesting individual. And uh, one of the stories I have for him is that he he lost three things to the federal government when he came here to the United States. Whenever Jeff got him got him into the United States, first of all, he wanted to bring his father's 1911, and our government says no, you can't because that's a military weapon. You can't import that, so he had to leave that behind. He wanted to bring his motorcycle. He had a Honda Goldwing that was built in Ohio that all of the numbers and things on lenses and things like that were for export to South Africa. And so he, had, he, he lost it. He brought his girlfriend and she came in. I think it was a two-year visa that she was on. And uh, so he calls me up after two years and says, uh, Jerry says it's, it's, it's almost up and we can't figure out a way to get her to legally to stay here. So I said, well, I'll, I'll give some of my immigration people a call. So I called them and they said, just tell them to marry them, marry her. They do it all the time. So I called Louie and says, well, just marry her. He goes, I can't do that. I, I, I gave an oath that I would not marry her whenever I brought her into the country with me. So I called the immigration guy back again. He says, don't worry about that. People do it all the time. They've never prosecuted. Just tell them to marry her. Well, Louie being Louie, he wouldn't do it. So Louis Arbach lost his girlfriend, and just a few months after that, she married an American and was able to stay in the in the country. So, you know, lots of lots of ups and downs uh, during that time. Uh, one of the uh, events that happened that people don't may not realize is that that Jeff was a was an animal person. He was a hunter. He was well. He was he was more of a rifleman than he was a pistolero. He he really worshipped the the rifle. Uh, the uh, the book of his on the rifle was one of he felt that that was one of his his uh, main accomplishments in his life was the fact that he he got that book on the rifle out but uh, he had but he also had a cat named Fidget that sat on his lap when he was doing all of his writing and stuff like that and when I was up there for my four nine nine with the with the uh, nineteen eleven hurts and shooting one evening and uh, next morning I saw Russ Showers who was the operations officer and said. What, what was the shooting last night? He goes, oh, I think I shot Jeff's cat. And I go, what? And what had happened is that, that they, people would dump cats off out there in the middle of no place and they'd end up at the barn. And this long-haired cat came in and was bullying the other cats. And so Russ put a contract out on the, on the long-haired cat. So he's in his house. And we had two uh, Canadian instructors that were just, they were, we called them our McKinsey brothers and some of the older people on that listen to this may, may may know what that meant because they were like the McKinsey brothers from from Canada on the TV show and so one of them comes in and says hey Russ uh, that cat's up in this tree out, outside your house and he said well shoot it he said well I, I don't have anything to shoot it with and so Russ grabs the shotgun goes out they shouldn't use a flashlight boom shoots this cat and it falls to the ground and then either you know I think it was Boyd did a couple of 45 rounds in it to do some ballistic testing and then Russ goes over, looks at it, and sees it's, it looks like Fidget, Jeff's cat. 
And he was so upset, Jeff was so upset because then Russ, Russ told me, he says, yeah, well, we have a, we have a viewing at 10 o'clock. Uh, and, and it was, it was fidget. And Jeff couldn't give the mental conditioning lecture that afternoon. He, he had us play the video instead uh, for the, for the mental conditioning. Uh, and it, losing fidgets affected him for quite a while. That is fascinating. I know that, that's gold right there. Uh, thank you yeah. for sharing that. Uh, one, to find out that Jeff Cooper was a cat person, because who'd have thunk? Yeah, well, they they had cats and things. I had to pick one up one time down in Phoenix from his, his daughter and take him up, take him, take it up to the house. And it puked all over my my uh, my garment bag in the back of the, of the car on the way up. So it stunk all the way up. But he had several cats and dogs. Uh, Crusader is the dog that, the uh, black and white dog that used to ride on the back of his trike all the time. And Jeff would take off and the dog, dog would would take off and land on the back of that trike and, and keep on going. Uh, it was amazing to see him stay on there because Jeff Jeff got a little little um, aggressive sometimes on his, on his trike work. And Crusader stayed right on the, the back of it with him all the time. It's funny. I, I had a, a little mutt growing up named Ted, and I, I had a bunch of ponies and then later horses. And I'll be riding along, and Ted would come and he'd start trying to jump up, wanting to get into the saddle with me. And I'd catch him on one of the upswings, and he would ride across the pommel of the saddle until he got tired of it. Yeah. And then he would just launch. <laughs> 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 he turn hand over hand and then get up and run like nothing would ever phase him. And it's just, yep. it's funny how they, they adapt to those things. That's great. Yeah. They have a graveyard for their animals up there next to the mausoleum that, that Jeff had built for he and his wife, uh, Janelle. Uh, he's not there anymore. They, the uh, family moved, moved them from the mausoleum to uh, a graveyard, the pioneer graveyard in, in Prescott. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned that you shot a revolver at your first t yes. Which revolver was that? Uh, model 66 and my 250 and my 686 and my 499. I had to ask that question for all the revolver heads out there. That's, yeah. Well, that my, uh, my, my um, 66 is the one that I shot the perfect score on the FBI tactical revolver course, which got me my picture in the paper and a silver medal from from uh, Judge Webster, the director of the FBI. It's a, the old course. I don't know if you, you were familiar with it. You started at 60 yards in a push-up position and had to run to 50, and you shot left-handed, right-handed, prone, sitting, and then ran to 25, and then 15, and then 7. Uh, it's a 60-round course. And I I happened to, to get all of them within the uh, scoring area, so they they uh, got my picture in the paper. But that's the FBI. They, that's what they do. That's outstanding. We've got a, a sergeant that works in the jail that is from Ohio. And of course, he's got an Ohio State Buckeyes tag on, on the front of the, his truck. And his father is a retired Ohio State trooper. Well, I got to the range to work with him this morning and I beat him to the range. So I set up a target and started shooting some revolvers. And one of them was a uh, Dayton special or a Heinen special, whichever one you want to want to call it and he shows up and gets out and i hold up that that old model 14 dayton special i said if you can't tell me what this is you have to take your ohio state tag off the front of your truck and he was heartbroken because he just couldn't figure it out I, I let him keep his tag but it was fun to mess with him on there a little bit it's good 
now you also said something that piqued my interest that you know you started off with the nra instructor course and then you learned that there were just different things from gunsight than what you had been doing down in the valley could you highlight some of those things well just shooting steel um shooting steel was was something that was was uh you you're never supposed to do uh because everybody's going to get killed by it in fact we had to move our competition shooting our our ipsy style competition shooting from the national guard armory because a colonel saw shooting steel out there and decided that that wasn't something they wanted to do so i had to move out to ben avery range so shooting steel but but, but teaching people how to get the, the weapon out of the holster onto the target as quickly and efficiently as possible because we were always told you can't teach quick draw because if you drive quick teach quick draw they're going to shoot themselves and it's your fault and you're going to be liable for that so we never taught we never taught how to get the gun out of the holster uh, we did some talk about how to unsnap that snap that goes over the back of the of the uh, hammer uh, by using the heel of your hand. You know, you go down to the bottom part of the holster and run the heel of a hand up in order to take the snap off in order to get to the to the uh, firearm. Uh, all of our holsters had had the triggers all exposed, so you could get to the get to the gun in a hurry. And we lost lots of guns. I spent a lot of time as an armor just replacing the rear sights on 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 uh, Smith & Wesson 15s and, and 19s uh, because they, when they fell, they always fell on the rear sight. So of course. Had to, had to replace those, yes. Right on uh, the corner of the sight blade. That's it, yes. Yeah, so did a lot, did a lot of those. So, you know, just the presentation, uh, front sight. I never knew to focus on the front sight until I got to gun sight, believe it or not. And I've been a firearm instructor for almost 10 years, well, for 10 years. And, you know, I said, well, just line up the sights. But as far as a focal point, and I was amazed my groups got smaller. And I thought, well, this is amazing. This is, this is something new for me. Uh, so just those things and, and uh, you know, strict time and, and things of that type. And that's another thing with Jeff is that Jeff did not use any electronics. The electronics existed, but he didn't use electronics. He told me, you can do more with a whistle than you can with the, one of those electronic boxes because you can you can reward people and you can also punish people with a, with a stopwatch and a whistle. You know, if you think that they need to go faster, you can cut it off a little bit for them and make them feel that well, I I need to go a little bit faster there. I went too went too slow there. Or if they need a little bit more time, you can get a little more time without embarrassing them or anything else and running them with that. So Jeff always used whistle and stopwatch. The fun house, we didn't we didn't have any electronics out there. Everything was gravity. We had targets up in the up in the rafters with wires going everywhere. We knew where the wires were. We had doors that we could pull a wire on and it would slam open. There'd be a target on the other side pointing a gun at the individual. We had a target that was on springs um, that when we pulled a wire, this uh, two by this uh, plywood would come around the corner with a target on it all of a sudden and surprise them. Then we had another one that was on a wire that we could pull a cable and the target would be on plywood, go across an opening in the in the front house in order to shoot at it. You know, we had a we had an arm that would smack their gun if they had stuck the barrel through the door up out of the playhouse. We would use a wire there in order to get this hand come out with a glove on it that would hit their hit their barrel to let them know that they're not supposed to to stick the gun out through the door until they've, they've cleared it. So I, so he he came up with stuff that was just uh, very simple. Uh, well, we had a we had a treehouse for rifle work 
you got up in this tree house and it was a large tree, you'd be up there and the whole the whole building swaying. And then he had targets out on the on the the uh, the ground out there at varying distances and things, and you had to figure out the distance and and hit it while the while the tree swam back and forth. It was so he he came up with a lot of inventing stuff. Then of course he had Clint Smith as one of his first uh, operations officers, and he invented the the scrambler that uh, everybody really thought was was great at the time because you started standing at a tree. You went from standing, the next one had to be kind of a squat, then you had kneeling, sitting, prone, then you went underground, and there was careful because when you fired your firearm, it had dirt and stuff in the box above you, and so all this dirt would come down on you. If you didn't, if you didn't hit it the first time, then you had to deal with the dust and stuff. Then you had to climb up a tree and then hit it from up in the tree. So so those types of activities, we had never done, never done any of that stuff before. We came back with that. For the officers and it just really turned people on for for using how to learning how to use a firearm so was it well received from the officers when you started bringing it oh yeah in fact yeah my my chief was just he thought i was i was just a, a magical person and i kept telling well this is this is the stuff that you learn when you go to schools and things and they sent me to lots of schools they sent me to you know they sent me to negotiation schools advanced negotiation schools i went to one of those and uh, one of the the uh, individuals that critique you get me off to the side and said, Jerry, what do you do on the team? Because I was I was SWAT for five years. I said, well, I'm, I'm the commander. But, oh, good. Don't negotiate. You you have no empathy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, they wasted their time sending me to negotiation school. Yeah, I got I got to kick in doors and stick guns in people's face and this stuff, but that was pre-SWAT. That was working yeah. narcotics. Working narcotics, we go to get two uniforms, one for the back, one for the front of the house, and we kick in the door and go in and, and take people down and stuff. So that was all my kicking in doors uh, experience. With the SWAT team, I was I was just the commander. But I did get to jump off of buildings and, and shoot with them and things like that. Sounds like fun. It's good to hear that your administration was on board. You know, because that's one of the things I've seen through the years. And I'm sure you saw it with other agencies is you would have personnel who were willing to do the extra mile and carry the load. But then you run into administrative hurdles you know, yeah. back at the agency with that. And, you know, and I, I know you said you were a captain. I, I was a chief deputy for, for a while. And you, we can see the other side of that, too. Yes. Because somebody's got to, somebody's got to make the dollars and cents add up. Yeah, and yeah, but, hey. go ahead. One of the things that I try to point out to all of our Type A training brethren is, you know what? Somebody has to answer the nine one one calls. Somebody's got to work the wrecks. Somebody's got yep. to serve the civil papers and write the theft reports. We can't be at the range training all of the time. It would be Absolutely. nice if we could. It would be great to make a living being being a range student. But at some point in time we still got to do the job. Right. Yeah the, the administration really was good. I went to Europe three times on company time. Um because I we had a city manager that wanted new innovative ways to to do uh the job. And so I went to him and said okay we have a sister city in Germany. I will spend all the money because I was I was married at the time and making good money. So I'll I'll spend the money. You just give me a company time, 
so I can deduct everything off my income taxes and we'll be good to go. I'll, you know, so I would come back, give presentations to Kiwanis and Lions and, and Rotary Clubs and, and things of that type. So I did that in, in Bavaria. I did that in, uh, well, I went to Siberia uh, and did that in Siberia. Then over at uh, Ireland, I taught at the Irish Police Academy. That that was mainly to 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 uh, study their their training system that they were doing there, very similar to the German system. It's a two hour pro two two year program in order to get get out of the academy in order to to go go to work there. Wow, compared to like when I went through the academy, it was ten weeks. Well, here it's eighteen weeks. Yeah, yeah. Well, my my academy, my original academy, was ten weeks, but I got hired at the fifth week. Right. to replace another another officer so i only got the last five weeks of the academy the only academy i've i've gone completely through is the the uh, fbi national academy which is uh i think it's not it's just started three months yeah. yeah here in georgia it was not until the 90s that uh academy certification prior to going to work was required by statute uh, an officer could work up to a year without going to the academy yeah 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 we i was in the second group of officers to be sent to an academy with my agency wow. and that was in 1967 i became an officer at 21 one month and 27 days old in 1967 wow so i i take it you saw lots of changes on the job over the years then lots of changes absolutely yes yeah, it's yeah, just the differences in report writing and record management systems from you know I've been on next week will be twenty three years and we still wrote reports for pen and paper. You know, in all caps and our agency was very, very, very <laughs> on the original public narrative, you could not have any any mistake whatsoever no mark through no one if you messed up on the last sentence you rewrote that whole page. whole page absolutely yeah right. I, I remember those days in a supplemental or investigative report you could have one or two mark throughs or whatever but nothing there could be no mistakes whatsoever on the original report yep. and uh, i remember seeing sometimes your supervisor holding a piece of paper up to a light trying to see was that overwrite you tried to fix that letter too noticeable or not and you know now they do it all electronically and submit it electronically through the airwaves to the supervisor who can read it but uh yeah just that kind of stuff is just demonstrable changes but it's just other technology that's coming on absolutely yes can't well, you, the technology you just can't believe it it's it's there's no way in the world. I, I bought a computer in 1984 for $2,000 uh, with no no hard drive whatsoever, of course, because you had two floppies. That was it. My first uh, five megabyte hard drive cost two, $200 for five megabytes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that, that's one of the, re- up at Gunsight, I, I did their, I, I developed their first database for them uh, because I had to, to work, um, I had to develop a database for the academy I was commander of the academy for well, a lot of years, twenty some odd years, just with just with the academy, and so I went. So I made a. I was using the computer in the academy, and they were doing pencil and paper up at gunsight with Greg Morrison, uh, who wrote the, the uh, modern technique of the pistol. I'm in that book. If uh, 
if you get get a chance to look at it, it's, you'll see a younger, much better looking person than what you're seeing me if uh, seeing right now. But uh, Greg Morrison was trying to get Jeff into the computer era too, and Jeff, of course, hated hated computers, and so I was I was up there quite often on the weekends just doing computer work uh, for things that would would go wrong, and and uh, so I would they that's. Jeff used me for that uh, also was uh, the computer stuff. For those that are wondering how you can get a copy of that book, I'm told that it is available through the Gunsight Pro Shop. Probably. Well, I, I went and somebody said that, you know, that's an expensive book. I'm going, you're kidding me. I went on eBay and people are trying to sell that thing for $100 and, you know, 50, 50 to $100. And I'm like, I can't, I can't believe that. That's incredible. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm, I'll have to, I'm, I'm going to have to go look at the, at the I'm, I have a class up there, the, the 10th. I'm going to have to go in and take a look, see if they still have it. I've got a copy of one, but I don't remember what I paid for, but I bought it new, uh, like off yeah. of Amazon or somewhere. It wasn't anything like what the prices are being reported. Oh, now. no, no. Well, no. Uh, here, here's a, a funny uh, memory for you from the old days. The rookies now will never get the joy of trying to fingerprint a drunk with actual ink fingerprints on a paper card. <laughs> yeah, we we just leave them till in the morning. Yeah, and you get to like that last finger, and the drunk falls over and smears the whole card and everything. And they just now they just hit delete and do it again. And I'm like, we'd have been there for another twenty minutes trying to get a perfect card. Well, one of the last stops I made. I was in my my uh, Crown Vic, unmarked, of course, and there's a guy on a motorcycle that is drunk, and I can't even hardly talk on the radio by that time because everything is done on phones. So I called in and asked for a real police officer. You know, to, I'm going to stop this guy, but I, but I need a real cop to to deal with him. And so he, I'm standing there, and the the uh, young officer comes up and starts putting him through all these tests and stuff. And this guy's falling down drunk. Well, in our day. He's falling down drunk. He smells like alcohol. He's falling down drunk. Can't do it. You know, you know, hook him and stuff him and, and so forth. And this guy's going through test after test after. And I'm going like, is this for real? Is this what you have to do now? And he goes, oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. We have to, you know, do all of this. My God, it took, it, it was probably 45 minutes before they ever cut the guy up and put him in the back of the car so he could get some rest. And that's what he needed. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's difficult today. I couldn't, I couldn't be out there today, just for the political aspects of it. There's no way in the world. Yeah, and and for the audience, for the most part, most drunks, the punishment they get is the ride to jail and having to bond out that night. <laughs> and that, that's about, that's yeah. and the officer does hours upon hours of paperwork. Yep, and that's the most that ever comes out of it. Yeah, we used to do things uh, like the feed feed them breakfast in the morning was it was an egg sandwich with some mayonnaise on it that we got at a local restaurant. But of course the the uh, jailers would go back and say, "Okay, breakfast time. Uh, give me your orders." He's back there to do a head count actually, and say, "Yeah, well, your choices, you know, eggs and and bacon or you know hash browns. Do you want this? And what kind of coffee do you want?" And then the officer, the uh, local officer, would go pick up the sandwiches, come to give them to the prisoners, and the prisoner going like, "No, I didn't order this. No, I, you know, it's, everybody gets the gets the egg sandwich." Yep. You, can't, you can't play those things anymore. Somebody's going to complain, and and you're going to be in front of a higher yeah. authority. 
as we tell them in our jail, this is a Burger King. You don't get it your way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, you, you attend those three classes at Gunsight, and then Mr. Cooper decides to bring you on as an instructor. Tell us how that process went. <laughs> That's a good one, too. Uh, he, he lets us uh, take the SWAT teams up on weekends to uh, use the facilities. So we, uh, Louis Arbuck and Russ Showers uh, would help uh, with the training and we'd use the houses and the washers and stuff like that. So I'm in my, my uh, BDUs and I'm going to take Russ to, to uh, dinner for helping us for the weekend. And that's when he presented me with my orange and brown hat. And the orange and brown came from uh, Janelle but Janelle says, I, I didn't mean for it to go overboard the way that, that Jeff did. You know, everything turned became orange and brown. So I had my brand new instructor's hat in hand. And Russ is going to tuck his pants away and into his shirt into his pants. So he takes his 45, put it on the counter, stuffed his shirt in, fixed his pants, zipped them up, got the 45, picked it up, and did a press check. Press check, as you know, was invented by, by Eldon. And when he did the press check, he didn't think that it went to battery, so he flipped it. When he did, he bumped the trigger and shot a big bronze fire extinguisher that's hanging on the wall in the ranch house, which was, was the, uh, the house for the operations officer. And white powder everywhere, all over me, all over my brand new brown and, and orange hat. And then he looks and says, we need to go tell the old man. I'm like, oh, crap. So we go across the, the parade ground into the garage, into the sconce, into the, the house. Janelle is at the sink looking out over the, the uh, valley. And just in his chair, which is to the right of the big fireplace in, his, in the living room, reading the paper. And he, he looks up and says, how goes the war, gentlemen? And Russ says, uh, pretty good, but, but we got to talk to you. So then we sat on the couch. And I swear to God, he took the legs off that couch because we felt like, we felt like little kids because we're sitting down lower looking up at Jeff and he's all serious. So Russ starts telling him about what happened about, about shooting the fire extinguisher and Jeff's looking and he's all serious and stuff like that. And all of a sudden Janelle looks over and says, Oh, Jeff, are you going to tell him about yours? And, and Jeff's head snapped around <laughs> and, and looked at Janelle and then he kind of smiled and tell us, told us about it. he came in from shooting one time, got a bunch of guns. He picked up this 44, uh, caliber Blackhawk uh, Ruger and cocks it and kaboom shoots a uh, a light fixture on the wall with it. So he he talked about his. So she she would do those things. He would she would diffuse stuff when she, when she felt that maybe Jeff was going to get upset about something or stuff. So he, she would she would find a way to to make things go better. <laughs> Well, there you go. Because I'm certain that his his response may have been very different if she hadn't outed him right then. There's a possibility that he <laughs> he really was pretty good. He really was because I had a I had a student let one off behind the podium in the classroom, and I'm thinking this guy's gone. He's he's not going to be here anymore. And I uh, hit the wall, and the spent bullet was on the on the floor. So we cleared him out. Made sure no one was injured or anything else. So I pick up that spent uh, projectile go over to the sconce and Jeff sitting at the at the breakfast table and I just sat in front of him and he looked at it said where said in the classroom behind the podium 
He just shook his head, never even asked the guy's name. I thought for sure the guy was down the road, but he didn't. He just shook his head. He said, we try. And he kept working on what he was, was working on. So sometimes he was like that. Other times we had a Marine had a uh, issued 1911, uh, one of the old ones. And so Monday he gets some bites from the hammer. And so we told him, hey, you need the bandage. He said, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. So by Wednesday, he's seeping. So now he's trying to put bandages on it, and the bandages won't stick because it's, it's a seeping wound now. And the classes with Jeff were five and a half days. So Saturday morning, you did your, your formal uh, class drills, and you did the El Presidente, and then you had a shoot-off. It was a social thing. You, everybody wore their, their best leather and so forth. And so Saturday morning, this Marine shows up and says he, he can't shoot the, the school drill because of, his hand hurts too much. Jeff wouldn't even give him a piece of paper, wouldn't give him a grade at all, would not give him anything to show that he was even there. Wow. He was not a happy camper about that. Yeah. Wow. All right. So in those days, were all of the instructors personally selected by Mr. Cooper? Yes. Oh, yes. All right. Yeah. Uh, the uh, operations officer would usually suggest names and so forth if, if, if people were needed. I was the, when I got uh, hired on, I was the 19th instructor at the time because the instructors, most of them were, were uh, military or law enforcement. So we could only come up during vacation and, and things like that. So I would go up maybe three times a, a year. And sometimes I would go up just on my own time, but uh, in order to help out classes and things like that. So um yeah so it was it was fairly easy nowadays you have to have 10 years experience either military law enforcement or some other very very special like we have a, a marine doctor that does the medical thing for us and you know the school and stuff um then you have to be your name has to be submitted by a range master you have to go go through three classes with three different range masters and be evaluated each one of those and those three are on your dime where you have to come up and uh, get, do your own transportation and, and so forth and run three classes. So it's a, it's a much more difficult process now. They, the two uh, Canadians, they came down, took a class and they, they were driving home going like, that was a, a, an awesome experience. That was just incredible. And so they wrote Jeff a letter and said, how, how, how do you become an instructor? And Jeff said, well, we have a class going and gives them a date. Why don't you guys come down? The two of them came down there. They're trying to figure out how much this is going to cost them because he didn't say how much he's going to charge them to, to come down and go through the, this class. And uh, at the end of the week, you know, so they were, they were coaches. And at the end of the week, they got a paycheck. They, they were flabbergasted and they were on staff. Vaidluck, you're talking about Mike, Mike Vaidluck, uh, he told me that he's the only instructor at Gunsight that never took a class at Gunsight until after he became an instructor. And what had happened, he signed up for a 250. He uh, came over and he camped out in the, in the campgrounds on Saturday and Sunday. And Sunday, Jeff came out and was talking to him. And, they, and he, Jeff gave him a tour of the ranch and they were talking techniques and, and all that stuff. And he said, Vaynerk said he's sitting in class Monday morning. And Jeff's up there talking, you know, welcome to welcome to the students and so forth. And your range master this week is Mike Vaidler. And, and that was it. <laughs> another, another thing that we, we don't do anymore is that Jeff, you, 
Vedley could have a beer at lunchtime, always. He'd have he'd have a beer. It's kind of like in Germany when I did my studies in Germany. They have a beer machine in the in the police station. So I said, are they allowed to to drink a beer at lunch or something? And oh yes, but but they are not allowed to get drunk. You know, these days, you know, yeah. the attorneys tell us you have a beer, you have one beer, and you have have something to do with your firearm. He says, I can get I can get experts two miles down the block to testify that that one beer can change your your process of making decisions. So that you just can't afford to do that kind of stuff anymore. But Jeff Jeff had no problem with it. Okay. Now you're talking about the current uh, people to get instructed. They have to be submitted by range master. They have to get the three classes on their own, and then there's uh, and there's some sort of an apprenticeship after that where they have to. That is the that is apprenticeship. They have to have at least they have to take at least three classes. I think it is at gun site previously, and then the experience they they have to be an experienced instructor. It's uh, we don't teach them to be an instructor. They're supposed to be an instructor already. Uh, we just try. We're supposed to teach them how to present the gun sight doctrine. Uh, yeah, and all and all of us, we we will teach something away from gun sight, a little bit different than what we teach at gun sight. But we we do teach gun sight doctrine while while there. And we have range masters meetings from time to time. We just had one here in December uh, this month um, to talk about any changes that are that are needed and so forth. And gun sight's changed a lot. You know, people talk. About, I keep hearing, you know. Uh, Weaver and, and uh, isosceles. Well, Weaver came about, well, Weaver's stance was, really had very little to do with the stance. And, uh, what it had to do with is the isometric pressure of hands. The Jeff wanted that bend in the left elbow because it's like when you're doing curls, if you've got a heavy weight there, you have to throw your arm out and get some bend in your arm before you actually can give some pressure in order to get that curl done. Well, the same thing, he wanted to make sure there was a uh, bend on the arm in the support arm to make sure that you're pushing and pulling hard enough but the stance what he would say is okay toe the line and then you toe the line and then okay move your move your uh, uh, strong side foot four to six inches back that was it uh, you know a good stable stance as far as, as standing but the big thing was with the arms so being a law enforcement we had a thing we said, okay, uh, we have an interview stance. The interview stance, we would turn our body slightly in order to put the, what we'd say, we, yeah, you, you want to put the gun around the corner. You know, so you put the, you turn slightly with your body in order, in your interview stance. And we found that if you're in the interview stance, you automatically have that left arm bent because your shoulders are with your hips and you're turned slightly. That was never Jeff. But law enforcement took that into well. That's the Weaver stance: is that you can't your your body to the to the target, and you have that left arm bent. That wasn't Jeff. Jeff was was you had your hips and so forth uh, parallel to the to the uh, to the threat, and the main thing was that you just wanted to get that shoulder forward slightly to get that bend in the elbow. But Jeff didn't teach. He didn't shoot most of the time in a what he would have called the the uh, ideal weaver stance with the with the arm positions. He, um, even in our, po- I'm a subject matter expert for the state of Arizona in that committee. Been in that committee for since 1996. Before that, I was 1993. I was in the committee that that actually uh, decides what the actual curriculum in the academies are going to be throughout the state and so forth. So, 
but they still they still keep talking about weaver and, and isosceles. They're like, no, it's not. It's, it's you you have you have your neutral stance, which are your DT guys. Okay, you go, go to your neutral stance so you have a good ba balance and, and base, and then you hold the gun in the manner that's going to control recoil the best that you can, whatever that is. With a revolver, I'm I'm pretty much back to to a weaver mainly because I don't want my thumb sticking out in front of that that uh, cylinder. But I shoot um, thumb straight, thumb straight forward, uh, and that's not a problem. In fact, uh, Buzz Mills, the owner of Gunsight, came out with a memo uh, about five to seven years ago, probably saying no thumbs forward is is what it seems that most people are able to to use best in order to control recoil and that's what most of us most of us teach unless it doesn't fit the individual but if the individual shoots better otherwise it's whatever that they can shoot with what they can hit with is what we're concerned with so you know all of this stuff about yeah well you got to turn your body you got to you know turning the body was law enforcement did that to the weaver stance and then we called that the weaver stance mainly because of the the elbow was bent and that still irritates me because people really don't understand what it was that, that Jeff taught. I heard that from you just now, and I heard something very similar from Larry Mudgett earlier in the year. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah Larry's, a, Larry's a super guy. You'd, you'd think he was a Pentecostal preacher or something, you know. <laughs> you, you, you would never suspect his background. You know, he, he comes across with, you know, he, he just really is a nice guy. Yeah, uh, matter of fact, it's a question on his written test. Is, what, is what 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 is the Weaver stance? And the answer is it's isometric tension. That's it. That's <laughs> and exactly that's the it. answer. That is, and that's and the people that shoot what they call the modern isosceles, that's what they're doing. Yeah. You know, the arms are slightly bent, and yes, we we tend to do the pliers with the primary hand and mm -hmm. lock it in with the support hand. But still, it's isometric pressure in order to to control the recoil of the of the weapon. That's you know, so the Weaver and, and isosceles stuff just I can't get it out the window of even at here at Post in Arizona. But we're we're trying, you know. It's you know, get it get them in a position where they can control that firearm. And that's that's what we're looking for. It's amazing how stuff like that gets into lexicons and yes. gets into curricula. Absolutely. And then you have to fight these battles. Yes. Over it. And I met Ken Campbell at a school, at a class at the Rogers shooting school. Yeah. And, you know, Mr. Rogers is not a very big fan of the Weaver stance. Yep. And he, he mentions yep. it in his book. And that was an interesting back and forth when he was giving his lecture and he gave his comments and Ken yeah, he's he's got to defend the company line there, but then he made the point of it's a balanced fighting stance. It's not about yep. arm position, yep. et cetera. And yeah, what Ken told me was that the biggest per, the biggest source of how that got out on the internet and became the accepted fact was written by someone who'd never attended gunsight. <laughs> That's a possibility. I don't. The, the big thing here, it because it you know, Gunsight started it, and it's now gone. You know the the basics, the basics of what Gunsight 
still teaches, which is your stance and controlling the recoil, getting the gun out of the holster into the target as quickly as you can. All of that stuff has gone around the world. You know, I, I went, I did studies in England. Uh, Tony Long there, who was the, the head firearm instructor over for the Metropolitan Police in London for many, many years. Uh, we talked the same language. We talked flash type picture, uh, you know, um, all you know, all the gun sight stuff, but at that time he wasn't allowed to teach it because what happened was that in the '60s they had decided they need to arm some of their officers, and so where do they go? Let's go to America to learn how to do this. So where do you go to America? Well, you got to go to the FBI. So they went to the FBI, learned how to shoot FBI style, came back. They wrote all the all of the all the policies and things. Then they go up and rank. This is this is what happens throughout bureaucracies everywhere, they go up and rank. They don't want to change because by God, this is what we did and that worked back then. And so Tony was at the time was trying to do some changes and some of them were going like, no, we can't do that because we have to do it this way because you know, until those, um, what, um, what Boyd called the, the, uh, the uh, bombing generals, the, the, the bomber generals in, in his book uh, was that you know, they, they're still fighting their last war and we need to we need new stuff so but it's gone around the world it's it really has every, everywhere i go the reason i got to taught it, teach at the the uh, uh irish police academy i was coming over to study their their teaching techniques for their their officers and they found out that i was a gun sight instructor and so they asked if, if uh, myself and bill jeans could do a a, a two-day class with them with their firearms instructors outstanding that, and teaching and talking the same the same language we talk now. So it's it, it really people don't realize just how big of a of a event gunsight was at that time because no one else was doing any of that stuff. We had we had seals coming. The first night night sights I ever saw, we're having a night shoot and we have like five seals in there from Coronado Island, and I uh, say, okay, we're gonna get ready to shoot. And they go, I need about five minutes. They go off to the side of the, the range. I go, what the hell are you doing? I go over. They break a sailing stick, they shake it up, cut it open, they're gooping the stuff on their front sights, you know, uh, <laughs> out of that asylum stick in order to, to get their get their front sights. Um, you know, so we had lots and lots of military coming through because they could do things at gun sight that they couldn't do, couldn't even think about doing on their on their bases. They couldn't do it. So, uh, uh, you know, it, it was amazing seeing, seeing them come through and they're uh, the one of the best compliments that Jeff ever got was a gunny uh, from the Marine Corps went up to hear him on a Friday one day and said, Colonel, you know, the Marine Corps has taught me how to shoot my rifle for 15 years. And this is the first time that I learned how to fight with it because and and Jeff thought that most of this stuff was, you know, just fighting. But some of it was some of it was gaming. But people would come there and say, yeah, well, I'm going to come to gun site because I want to. You know, I want to do really good in Ipsic and stuff. Jeff said, don't come here. I don't want you to come here. Go go to Ray Chapman. Go to Chapman teaches you how to how to do Ipsy. I I want to teach you how to fight. And so so the evolution has gone because if you've got to you've got to evolve. So the evolution and so gun sight today is very different from, from what Jeff had. And Jeff, believe you know, to tell you the truth, by about 1990, Jeff had had stopped evolving. He had gone so far and he stopped. Uh, like moving and shooting. One week, yeah, we could have have the people move and shoot. 
next time I'll be up there. No, we don't do that here. Uh, but but he he had hit the wall where okay, this is where where he wanted it to be, and he he didn't go much further than than after everything that happened with Gunsight, you know, things have progressed much much further. We got we got some incredible people up there. We really do. It's I'm I'm in awe. Um, Gary Smith. Gary Smith runs the barn, and I'm thinking, well, you know, he he's an instructor. Yeah, he's a he's a hunter. The the guy's phenomenal. He really is. He's he's saved my ass a couple of times in, in some classes with some information that that I needed, and and he's right there. So the and he's he's not military and he's not police, but uh, because of that, we had a class here just a few months ago. We had a student that was just all upset with our technique of running the range and they latched on the Gary and because he was a civilian and he didn't have that police and military background. And again, he, he saved my push on that one too, because I was the range master and I'm trying to figure out how I can get this person to perform better. And they locked in the, in the Gary, I gave, gave him Gary and they, they, they came up, smelled like a rose at the, by the end of the week. So, but we do have just some incredible people. I haven't worked with all of them, but every one of them that I've worked with, I've, I've been impressed. And that wasn't always the time. During the dark days, uh, the 90s, uh, when uh, Jeff wasn't involved and Buzz hadn't come along yet, we had some people up there that were disappointments by far. I had, I had decided I don't want to be a range master all the time. I, I need to listen to other people. So I want, I want to coach. Well, they put me with this, this other instructor. And that was the first time I was ever embarrassed uh, being a, a gun sight instructor. And that's when I said, okay, yeah, I'll be the RM because I don't want to, I don't want to run that again. But, but like I said, I, I can't, I can't, I cannot tell you how much I respect those people that are there now. And I'm towards the end of my, of my teaching career, but, but I'm, I'm glad to see a lot of younger people. And when I say younger, we're talking forties and fifties still, uh, you know, cause you have to have a lot of experience in order to, to get there. So, uh, and Ken talks about, he likes seeing, you know, that if when he gets on an airplane, he likes seeing people with a little bit of gray in their hair there in that pilot seat, you know, because they got they've got experience. And that's that's what we're looking at at gunsight. Even the younger guys have some hair, some uh, gray hair in them usually. Yeah. Um before we started recording, you mentioned that one of the great things about teaching at gunsight is that the cadre comes from all over the United States. Yeah. So you get to keep abreast with what's going on all over the U.S. Would you like yes. to expand on that? Yeah, because we we have people from Pennsylvania, lots and lots from California. The California guys seem that when they retire, they move to Arizona or at least someplace else, either Nevada, Arizona, Idaho, and so forth. They get the heck out of California. But yeah, but we have them from all over the all over the uh, the states. Uh, when Jeff was there, we also had instructors from from Canada. Uh, Australia, um, Sweden, uh, but then with the changing of immigration laws and all that other stuff, uh, we don't have any more of the, the foreign instructors, but we have people from all, literally all over the United States and, and lots of, lots of experience. And that's, that's, that floors me because of the people that we have there uh, are, they're just really knowledgeable in their in their areas uh, and it's it's great i do i do the instructor development 
because uh, my background with with uh, general instructor in, in Arizona to be a firearm instructor complete you've got 40 hours general instructor 80 hours firearm instructor 40 hours rifle patrol rifle instructor then if you want shotgun that's another three days and revolvers another two days so it's a it's a long process and I've been doing instruction uh, for the state and for gun, well, Gunside just started their instructor development class just a couple of years ago, um, and I've been doing that, been developing it in 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 conjunction with another Gunside instructor, who's a professor with the Emory Riddle uh, University, and so he and I together put together the the curriculum for the for the one week uh, instructor class up at Gunside. We try to do a whole lot of hands on instructing have having the people do instructing themselves rather than than um well we, we still have a lot of lectures of course we have to go through responsibilities but we actually teach this is this is how we approach this this drill this is what we we look for this is these are the safety things that you got to be aware of and things of that type and then they critique each other uh well we'll pick a team to, to do a drill then they have to face the berm then they get critiqued with uh, from the all the other students and the instructors and so forth. That's a that's a you're trying to cram everything in one week. You can imagine doing doing an instructor class in one week is a little on the difficult side. But uh, you hope that they have some some instructing uh, ability before they get there. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's one of the one of the things that I think draws a contrast. I'm not trying to belittle the. NRA schools or the USCCA schools, but you show up for a three-day instructor school and you think that's not it. That's maybe a jumping yeah. off spot. Yes. Just and, barely. Right. And, yeah, you know, you look, you look at all the things like the, in Georgia now, in order to teach, you have to go through an 80-hour just instructor school. Before you yeah. start going to That's the specialty good. schools, such as an 80-hour firearms instructor, 80-hour yeah. defensive tactics instructor, everything, before you're allowed to start teaching those classes. And the washout rates on that's pretty high, pretty yeah. high. You know, you're listening to everything you were saying and talking about there in Arizona. And you know, that's a lot of hoops and a lot of time in a classroom for someone to go through to be able to get out teaching. Of course, yeah. then we all have to hone our craft. Then you have to then you have to get the experience, and you had one of the uh, people on your one of one of the, your I, I listened to several of your your uh, podcasts before I got here to, to see what I was supposed to do. They were talking about the NRA certifications. Don't ever, never, ever let one of those lapse. Keep every one of them. Okay, you you don't you don't may not teach that, but like when I I had to go to Alaska to teach uh, the uh, some troopers up in Alaska. They only they only recognize NRA. They don't recognize anybody else. If you don't have an NRA certificate, uh, you're not going to teach up in, in Alaska. So every one of those certificates, even if you don't teach that element anymore, at least it shows you that, okay, I have this experience. Right. And so if you're going to go to another state or another country or something like that, uh, the NRA, like you said, you know, that they have the name. That's they have the name, but um for professionals, uh, their level of class, their their law enforcement appears to be better because we have a couple of their instructors on our curriculum committee here at, at uh, Arizona Post, and they do an excellent job 
teaching at, at the instructional classes. I'm, I'm, I really respect them, but I, I didn't have that much respect for the, the standard NRA classes that I have taken in the, in the past. Yeah. You know, if you look at, say, the NRA basic pistol, for what it's trying to accomplish, I think it does an acceptable job. My gripe with it is someone that goes and gets NRA basic pistol instructor, and then they want to go out and start teaching fighting with a handgun. Yes. Nothing in that program addressed fighting. You're not even no. allowed to shoot at a humanoid target. Well, I can't, I can't, I'm doing a, a, a talk. And I hear this little bell going off. I go like, what's with the bell? You I said weapon, I, didn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> many times. <laughs> many times. Yeah. I'm going like, what is wrong, what is wrong with you? Say, well, what happened was, was uh, I'm an Arizona Post Certified Firearms Instructor. So when we got the CCW permit uh, thing go, going in the, in the 90s, uh, we, could teach, we could teach that. Well, our Arizona Citizens Defense League Got the laws changed to the point that they irritated the Department of Public Safety director. So, and the got the law got changed to it has to be an approved instructor by the by the by the director. He said we only approve NRA. They would not approve Arizona Post law enforcement firearm instructors to teach CCW. So I had to go take that three day NRA uh, course because I let my I let my we we haven't allowed the the NRA firearm instructor certification since early '90s, if not before that. Uh, so so we so no one really took it because it didn't do us any good in Arizona. So I let that lapse. Shouldn't have done that because I can't can't get it back without going through the whole course again. But uh, it, it it didn't fit what we needed to to have done. So it was. So it's, but don't let it lapse. Keep all of those. It's not that expensive. Was that the episode with Karen Whitlock? Yes. Yes. If I understand correctly, Karen was awarded one of the scholarships from the Jeff Cooper foundation. Oh, so, good. You, so you should be seeing her in Arizona. Excellent. I, I think uh, she got one of those. Is she, is she part of, part of the, uh, the well-armed woman? Uh, I think she she's got either well-armed women or a girl with a gun at her okay. range. Because uh, we've got a new program up there for the for the well-armed women. They take a 250, so they're five days on the range, and then I get them for three days to to show them why we do things that we do and how and how we approach running the range and so forth. So so I I'm taking that week and even compressing it down even further, but it's going to really help because. If they've just been through a whole 250, they've got the presentation. They've got they've got all of those other stuff, all those other things already done, and so it'll be much easier just to work with them on the range and have them work with each other in order to to do teaching and so forth. You know, but uh, yeah, and that's 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 an excellent program. It really is. Uh, we go up once a month and volunteer our time uh, for the the chapter there at Gunsight, and uh, they have three levels: they have beginner, immediate, and then uh, intermediate, and then and advanced, and they do houses, and they do washes and stuff. Uh, it's, a, it's a really a good program. And the ladies, I just love the ladies. They, they, the the whole range is so different with when it's full of ladies. It's just a a much. It's actually a more learning environment, I think, with the ladies than it is is with a bunch of the guys there. 
you know, because you know, my grandpappy taught my pappy and my pappy taught me. And, you know, I just don't, I just know that stuff already. And they come in with their minds wide open and, and just say, okay, what, what do I do with this thing? So, so I, I'm really looking forward to that. We're, we just put that program together. In fact, I'm still working on the, on the uh, three-day curriculum, making sure that I've got everything in, in line for those three ladies, but, well, for the ladies that come through the 250, then over to the firearm instructor uh, portion of it. I hope so. I hope she's there. I'd really like that would be a. Yeah, I a, will make certain she is aware of it. Excellent, excellent. I will make certain yeah. she's aware of that, and hopefully she'll be able to fit that in. Uh, Karen's outstanding, so I think it would be great for getting her to come back. Well, I, I like want to go. I want to go pick like her it. brain when she gets back. Yeah. Uh, Cecil Birch had asked me to ask you a question uh, about rifles, and I can't find the the question. I was sitting over here looking on my phone <laughs> trying to find it. Uh, it was something to do with. Uh, how did Mr. Cooper feel with like how the the five five six or two twenty three becoming the prevalent rifle round? Like how did he adapt to that over the time? Um, he he didn't much care for it except for the fact that uh, what it was used for for defensive work was it was. But he of course preferred the uh, big the uh, bigger calibers. Uh, but the the rifle itself, I think he he he. Uh, he accepted it. He he didn't like the fact that it was a poodle shooter. Of, and either he or one of the other instructors uh, came up with that. But he uh, uh, felt that it, they, sh- they should have more more bullets than what what they were getting. But uh, he was impressed with how you know, we have the the you know, Marine Marksman ship unit come out and things, and they did quite well with those those little guns. And and uh, he. Um, I don't think he had an AR. Come to think of it, I know he had HK ninety one, had uh, had some others. I'll have to take a look again when I'm up there next time to uh, to take a look. But he he was he was more of a rifleman than he was a, a pistolero. He really was. He he really enjoyed the rifle work. When we had a rifle class, everything else was shut down because we shot over all the other ranges, and that uh, a lot of good information. And he. He, the happiest I ever saw him was when he had, had got his lion in uh, Africa, uh, charging a charging lion. That he he got. Um, he was he was on cloud nine for probably a couple of months. You, you could do no wrong, and uh, <laughs> you know people people that, that said, oh, "Okay, well, retire uh, and go to gun, you know, move up to gunsite and, and teach." I go, "Well, I'm telling you, Jeff Cooper is one of the most intelligent people that." that I've ever associated with. Every time I go there, it's like being at university because we, st- we stayed in Wisconsin with, with he and his wife and we had, she made, she made us breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, so she had to go shopping the week before for all of us. And whenever uh, Michael Harris was going to be there, uh, he ate nothing green. So she had to buy special stuff for, for Mike. Uh, but but she, she did that well. But uh, and for the, that week, you're at university, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, talking about whatever it was that Jeff was studying at the time, and you learn stuff all of the time. I learned philosophy. I learned more about a philosophy of life from Jeff Cooper at those at those dinner times than I, I even had from my father. Now, the, the man was was extremely um, intelligent, and he, an officer and a gentleman. You just have a picture of Jeff Cooper because that's exactly what he was—an officer and a gentleman. But um, 
I said, you know, after the week though, I'm ready to come down the hill. You know, that's why his operations officers usually only lasted for a couple of years and then they were gone. Uh, you know, they, uh, Terry, a guy that works with uh, Clint Smith, told me that, that Clint Smith's shield with the three red stripes is a black shield because he left gun sight uh, other than in favorable conditions. And the three red stripes was for diligente discoloritis, the accuracy, power, and speed. And because uh, he left, you know, Clint, if you know Clint, he's, he, is a, he is his own individual. And he, he would only take so much. And most of the operations officers moved on in about two years. The only one that lasted longer was Greg Morrison, but Greg's IQ and Jeff's IQ were bumping each other. They were, they were right up there. And, and you could watch Greg convince Jeff things were his, was his idea when they were actually Greg's idea. He, he, uh, he knew how to, he knew how to influence Jeff uh, in his direction and did a good job of it too. It's funny, my former sheriff that, that uh, retired recently, if you walked into his office and just pitched something to him or started talking about some issue we were addressing, you got his immediate snap answer, and there, there was no changing it, at least not in the foreseeable future. And I used to sit there and laugh at the people who would walk past my door and go into his office and get just completely shot down or an answer they didn't want, and like would walk back down the hallway with their head hanging. And then later I'd find them and say, you know, if you'd come to me with that, yeah. <laughs> if you'd come to me with that, we could have worked out something because the way yeah. you would have to deal with it, you would have to, in passing, just kind of reference something yeah. related to it and get his wheels turning for a while and then come back and kind of get it, bring up yeah. the subject later, and you could typically get a favorable outcome. Yep. Good. Absolutely. But if, but if you just went straight in there charging at the bull, you got the horns. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Same with yeah, that's that was Jeff too, but uh, he, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of good stories. Uh, do you know you know Robbie Barkman? I don't know him, but I know the name. You know, uh, uh, what was the name of the company? Uh, finishing company, all the finishings. Oh, uh, Robar. Well, Robbie, Robar. There we go. Yeah. yeah. So Robbie was the range master at. I'm not the range master and gunsmith at gun, at gunsight in the years that I was there in the beginning. And uh, Jeff had a rooster, and this rooster was crowing in the mornings. And so Robbie goes over to, he had to go see Jeff every morning with a little meeting. We'll go to Jeff says, that, that rooster's waking me up way too early. You know, I need to, need to do something. And Jeff said, well, you know, it's a rooster. They do what they want to do. And so finally, Robbie Twong says, got to do something with that roof, rooster. He said, well, do what you got to do. Next morning, kabang. So uh, Robbie goes over for uh, a meeting with Jeff, and Jeff goes, says, uh, you shot the rooster, didn't you? Bobby goes, yes, and then just carried right on, you know, with, with their meeting. And Jeff, and he had a picture of, of him with his rifle in, in that rooster uh, up in his office all the time that he was there. <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah. Let's maybe back up a second here and explain some terms sure. for the audience. Uh, you, you've referenced the range master and you've referenced the operations officer. Let's make sure our audience knows what those positions are. Okay, well, we had an operations officer for a while. Now we have student coordinator, uh, and that is being taken over by Lou, uh, or Lou Gosnell. Uh, 
but we have different positions. Uh, Ken is the CEO. Uh, back when I when I started, you had student coordinator or operations officer, and he's the one that was really ran the the school and so forth. Uh, made sure all the you know instructors of where they're supposed to be and doing all those things. That was Greg Morrison, Russ Showers, uh, Clint Smith, uh, Chuck Taylor. All of those were were operations officers, really. So we have range masters. Range master is in charge of a class and uh, coaches. So and we do one to four. We do a, a one to four ratio, coach to to uh, students. That's excluding the range master because the range master has to be back there further in order to control everything. And and the range masters change. It's like um, uh, the last class I did with Charlie McNeese. Charlie was the range master. I was a coach. I like coaching more than I do range mastering because I get to work with people. Next January, we're working together again, but he's a coach for me and I'm the range master. So, but the range master is the one that is responsible for, for the class running, uh, getting everything done that you have to get done, keep it on schedule, uh, identify problems. That's another thing I really like about the administration right now. If we have somebody that's really taken up more time than what they should be, then they, Maybe they they sh they should have had another class before they got to us. We take them up to the office. They'll either uh, get them into a tutorial or give them their money back. Uh, so it's it's not a biggie. If they're a safety issue, they're gone. It's it's no, we can't can't afford that. And they they aren't there. They'll they'll write a check and put somebody down the road uh, just with, from the save from the from the range master. But they they try to work with them if they can. And very few of them, they they just send down the road. Normally, normally what they say, okay, you've invested this much money. What we can do is we can do a one-on-one -on -one tutorial with you for this, this many days, this many hours uh, in order to for you to get your money's worth. And you can go ahead and attend lectures and things, but we just can't, can't, can't have you on the range. That works out great. So right now we have Ricky. She's, uh, I don't know what her position is, but she's the, the front office and she does she does all the the uh, you know certificates and answering phone calls and things like that. We have Jane Ann who's who's marketing. Uh, we have Lou who is the student coordinator and he's he's the immediate boss of the range masters. And then we have uh, the CEO Ken that we report to. The range master has to go up at lunchtime, tell him if we have any problems or if we need something to make sure that it gets done. So it's a uh, it's a, it's a very expensive place to go because it's that's a whole lot of money put into there. When Buzz purchased the place in 2000, well, actually at the very end of 1999, he put over a million dollars into there. We have flush toilets, you know, we have good roads. Uh, the equipment got much better. Uh, you know, the range masters were happy because we we could just call people and they'd come down and fix stuff. Because we used to have to bring all of our tools with us because we did we did all the fixing and things if uh, something broke usually. So it's uh that's an expensive place. It's an expensive place to have, uh, and you know that type of facility. It's it's an amazing. You know we have three shoot houses right now. We'll probably have a fourth one by the end of next year. Uh, we have 27 ranges. Uh, you can shoot anywhere from contact position out to 2,400 yards. Um, just if you haven't been there, you need to need to come out this way and give me a call. I'll we can run up and I can take you around it. We could do that. I went in October of 
16 or 17, I think it was. I was actually out there doing the shotgun 260 the same week that y'all oh, were good. doing. Y'all were doing uh, the instructor development class. Oh, really? Yeah, because Marty Hayes was there in the instructor development yes. class. Yep. And so whatever year he was there for that was the same time I was out there yep. for 260. And that was the first one. And Marty helped me out a lot because uh-huh. he did he did a really good critique for me for that class. Uh-huh. And I ch- I changed quite a few things because one of the first things he said was that it sounds like it's too, too law enforcement because that's what I've been doing for, uh-huh. you know, since 1990, whatever. I've been doing law enforcement two-week classes and one-week uh, rifle classes and stuff like that. So... He says it, it leans too far towards uh, law enforcement. You need to need to civilianize it a bit. So I went in and did quite a bit of changing because just what Marty said, because I, I have a lot of respect for Marty. He's, he's really good. Yeah, I, I ran into him on that first Monday morning. And I'm like, hey, are you in the shotgun class? He's like, no, I'm here for the instructor development class. I'm like, ah, if I didn't realize that it was going at the same time, that's the class I would have been in. Um. Well, you, you just hit on something that I had hoped that we would get into. You've got all this teaching at Gunsight with a lot of the private sector students, and then you've got all the teaching with the Arizona cops. What are, do you see similarities on the range? What do you see dissimilar on the range? Uh, different teaching styles, different approaches. Actually, Arizona Post is... They won't. They won't tell you this. The uh, younger guys won't. But it is gunsight doctrine. Uh, it, it really is. And uh, you know, we got a lot. We've got a lot of good good people here too in in law enforcement. And it's really not that different. I teach. I teach for the for the college still. And I developed a a civilian uh, class. You know, we have just uh, we have civilian uh, classes for firearms for for handgun, uh, rifle. And so forth. I do one class. We start with with pistol caliber carbines. We move into World War One, World War Two, Korea. We go to first place Vietnam, second place Vietnam. We go into submachine guns, and then we go into scope rifles at the end of the day. So, uh, and that's for college kids when they they uh, eat that kind of stuff up. And and I don't change my teaching. Isn't much different from gun sight to uh, to law enforcement. To the academy, I've taught I've taught in the academy for well over twenty years. Uh, in fact, we started the academy in nineteen seventy eight, and I was the first firearms instructor that they had in the academy. And I retired from that in two thousand eight. Uh, so I was, I was there for a long, a long time with a lot of good, not just me, a lot of good uh, other people. And it's basically the same. We we teach the mindset and everything else because it's. I, we tell we tell the civilians your gun that's on your hip serves the exact same purpose as the gun on that officer's hip. There is no difference. You know, you have the firearm protection of yourself and the innocents. That's exactly what what the uh, law enforcement does. So it's it's uh, there's not a lot of difference, really, is it? We we uh, give them give them the same stuff. Uh, you know, we don't we we don't do much moving and shooting anymore because that's more entertainment as far as a civilian situation unless you're in a, in a team environment if you don't stop and stop the shoot you're probably going to miss and we tell them yeah you, you know and you got to keep moving if you're in time team environment because you got four other guys or five other guys behind you and if you stop you're not going to make that hit because they're just going to slam into you so you got to keep so you got to learn how to shoot and move at that time but we 
And we don't do much of that at all with the civilians anymore because it's, it really doesn't fit their their uh, environment. Yeah, that's that's one of my gripes with team classes on the private sector side. A team should be me and people I actually interact with in my actual life. Yeah. Now, if it's you have to bring your significant other, your your best friend, something like that, and you go to the class together, I see merit to that. And that's that's the team classic. That's exactly what they want to want you to do. They want husband and wife, you know, or you know, other people that are living in the household and so forth. That's exactly what what it's built for. Yeah, but I see no merit. You know, personally, don't. I'm sure somebody yeah. can can argue a different. You know, just because you and I managed to sign up for the same class at the same time, that doesn't make us a team as far as doing team yeah. tactics go. Yeah, but the, the advantage there is communication. Right. You know, we we do do some of that. We do quite a bit of that. And and one of the things that Gunsight doesn't do well in the regular classes is communication, holding people at gunpoint, telling them what not to do. You know, handling that environment that is not in the 250 class. And that, that to me, I think is a, is a, is a big hole that, um, you know, we, cause in the academy, we do lots and lots of drawing that gun without shooting, you know, yelling, you know, don't move, police don't move, um, mm-hmm. moving, communicating and things of that type, because that's, that's what you're going to do most of the time. Right. It's, it's not going to be shooting. So it's, uh, and I tell them in the instructor class, I said, if you don't teach your people how to not shoot people, it's going to cause you a problem because you're going to get in court and say, well, do you ever shoot, teach them to not shoot people? Well, well, no, because I'm teaching them how to shoot. No, you got to teach them how to handle that situation also without pressing the trigger. Absolutely. Uh, I tell my students that there's two things that I want them to say about my classes when they leave is that it was a safe environment and that that fat guy spent a lot of time on not shooting people. <laughs> That's good. That's very good. And in my basic, I'm calling it pistol craft now, it used to be defensive pistol skills. And that basic class um, was my core kind of a, def- my one day version of what a 250 would be. Um we spent a lot of time on things like drawing to a ready position with the definition of ready is that no part of the muzzle is covering any part of the, the person. I like that. Yes. That's... And, and giving short, no more than two word verbal commands. And in a course of fire, they shoot at the end of the day, there is a string where they have to draw to a ready position and give a verbal command, but there are no shots fired. And I walk up and down the line or my assistant walks up and down the line and we make sure that the muzzles aren't covering any kind of the, you know, the, the target of the meat and if they, and we document that as far as their training goes. Yeah. So now I can come testify for them in court. Now, I trained them that it is capable of drawing the pistol without actually pointing it at the person. Yep. Yeah. Cause you know, when you talk about those people in Minnesota, I think it was the husband and wife with the, yep. with the protesters and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the only bad thing that I saw was that they're Muslim people. If you're Muslim yeah. people, many, many places, in fact, most places, that's a crime. Yep. Oh, you'll, you'll love this as a use of force instructor. I love hitting my cops with this question. And I hit it, private citizens with it too. What is What legal justification must you meet to point a firearm at someone? Actually, muzzle is covering meat. 
And I usually either get, oh, I don't know, or guess answers. It's the same legal justification to use deadly force and to actually shoot them. And if you're not at that standard, you shouldn't be pointing a gun at them. Yep. Because it's a crime. (laughs) Yep. My earbuds are dying. Let me see if these others will work. Sure. Let me see. Maybe, maybe not. Well, the left one's still. I think. Can you hear me? Yeah, still hearing you fine. So okay. Well. Right. We'll just go with one. All right. Um, let's let's talk about use of force for a second from a law enforcement perspective, if you would. I know you're on the, the use of force committee there with Arizona Post. What are you seeing as far as differences in um, either public or institutional pressure in regards to use of force training um, in use of force investigations? What are you seeing there? Any changes due to recent events? Well, yeah, they're, yeah we're, bringing, we're bringing more information into the, into the classes. Uh, for the instructors uh, about the use of force and you know the muzzling and, and and things of that type. So it's yeah with the with the environment that it is now, that's why I'm not going to be there much longer either because it's just it's getting uh, over my head because it's you know it's I could not be a cop now. I would I'd get fired in a week I'm sure. But uh, uh, but we are we're we're doing much more. You know the de-escalation is the big is the big word. That uh, we're trying to get into them, um, you know, we're we're doing more and more force on force in the academies. Uh, you know, we go through the through the whole process: bullseye, silhouettes, uh, Milo or Fats or whatever the system, the electronic system you have, and then force on force. Force on force is cheaper, it's better, it's it's the top of the of the uh, training cycle, and that that's where they really. T- really start learning de-escalation and so forth with working with other people and that's getting more and more pushed into us and and it needs to be it really does i would agree i i think we need much more of that because we spend so much of our training time on just the technical use of the weapon not the actual application of the use of the weapon and if you haven't taught people or allowed them to make decisions with the gun in their hand now, how can you expect them to do it when that's the time where it's comes? At. You know, that's why you know the, the mental conditioning has gotten deeper and deeper and deeper, and I'm I'm really glad to see that because, um, you know, just just that student that you have that is jerking the trigger and you cannot get them to stop jerking the trigger. Uh, the newest thing that I've I've come up with is, and it's I I read it I can't even get the guy's McEwen his name was. That he said that trigger control is not in control if they're jerking the trigger, and and much of that is the fear for fear of failing. Your fear of failing, you're trying to you know trying to be too accurate. I know that you know I I spend a lot of time trying to tell people try not do not try to be too accurate because it's going to work against you. Because what happens is your fear of, of failing starts overtaking your rational brain, and you're right into that. That when we talk about when you're dealing with other people, what happens is if you have fear, if fear gets so big 
that it overtakes because of saying, okay, I have to do it this way, uh, then your 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 uh, rational brain is not going to win, and that's when you're going to going to mess things up. So, just the trigger control you try to get to on the fact that your fear of failing overcomes your your rational brain. We tell you to to build pressure on that trigger till the gun goes off. You know, to not make the trying to make the gun go off exactly when you want it because that's not going to work because your 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 uh, uh, emotional brain is going to take over and going to smash that trigger and that's what you're going to do. So just that little bit there, trying to get them to get out of it. I've got I've got one gentleman that I've got to work with. I don't get him again until the end of uh, January. Uh, the end of January, I have a class with him again. Where I'm, I'm I'm working and I'm working. I'm trying to get him to realize that no, you are out of control when you jerk that trigger. You have to keep control with your rational brain that you have to build pressure on that trigger if you're going to hit the target. You know, but but just those things. You know, the mental conditioning part of it is has grown more and more. We teach we teach Jeff's mental conditioning. Then we then we move into the OODA loop because it's the same thing. If you take a look at Jeff's principles of self-defense, they're all included in the OODA loop, but the OODA loop is much easier for the students to, to just go into, you know, okay, you know, orient, the, you know, go through the, the loop, boom, 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 and to keep running the loop. And so it, so it gives them both perspectives, it gives them Jeff's very detailed one, and then the OODA loop, which is just trying to get them to thinking about the fact of, of what's going on and how you're going to keep running your loop. So it's, that mental conditioning part's got to get has got to get bigger. It's got to get in their heads and try to get it into them that this is this is what's happening. And, and I'm I'm hoping that by telling him that by jerking on that trigger, you are out of control. You're not in control of your of yourself. You have to stay in the rational brain. I'm hoping that that's going to get him. I cool. I'm looking forward to that just to see if I can get successful. Cool. Um, any personal stories of Mr. Cooper or other gunsight instructors or old good cop stories you would love to share? Oh, God. Are there, yeah, the, you know, the, the, the gunsight ones are the ones that most of the people want to, want to hear all the time. You know, like there's a fence around gunsight and, and people have cows and stuff. So one, so these cows keep breaking the fence down and so forth. And one time rush showers and Jeff's out there, one, one cotton picking steers out there. They get him, get him almost through the hole in the fence, and he turned and go the other way. And this went on for quite some time. And Jeff finally just took out his forty-five and put it down, and butchered the butchered it, and then had a hell of a time with the farmer. You know, he had to pay for the pay for the beef, but and the guy was not happy with it with him uh, shooting the steer. But um, Jeff did several of those those types of things. He, um, uh, there's there's so many things that. Right off the top of my head, I can't come up with it. You know, I, I told you about about fidget and and how it impacted Jeff. You know, being the person that he is, it impacted him as far as as uh, being able to continue with his his weekly weekly uh, duties. So that was a it's been a it's been a great life. It's been a great career. Uh, lots of good stories and some others. I'm sure that I and I, I'm not going to write a book. But what I do is I have I have uh, uh, life stories for my my grandkids my great grandkids that are online so i if i think of something i write it down and stick it in there instead of trying to organize it in a book or something like that it's you know like right. 70 some odd little stories and, and stuff about things that happened to me 
Yeah, I have one uh, either viewer or listener of the show uh, send me a message and asked me, was I ever going to compile all of this into a book? I said, yes, it's going to be an audio book, and you're getting it a chapter at a time. That's good. I'll tell you you one that's good in Russia. We went to Siberia to to examine the the militia there. This was just not long, not, not about two years after the fall of the wall. So the police chief there was a true blue communist, and he was not a happy camper about the Soviet Union. The assistant chief was a communist, but only because he had belonged to the party in order to get to where he was. So they decided they, they wanted to take us, this is November, so they wanted to take us to another city where their, their crime lab is. There's three of us, the chief, assistant chief, and me. And so they put us in a car. Uh, I'm, I'm in the right rear, police chief's in the left rear, translator between us, the other, the uh, assistant chief's in the front seat, and the driver, Walter, we take off. We come up to a river, and Walter slams on the brake, and he starts talking. And so the translator says, open your doors. So I think we're getting out. He starts starting to get out, and he says, no, 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 just a little bit. So we got the doors a little bit, boom, Walter takes off across this, this river. We get to the other side, he slams on the brake, and he's all thumbs up and stuff. But what it was is they weren't sure if the ice was frozen enough on the river. So so we opened the doors a little bit. So we started to break through the ice, the doors that hold the car open enough for, so we'd get out so, so they'd come get a car. I said, you know, I would have walked across the river. <laughs> yeah, that that's definitely a second world solution right there to, to that yeah. problem. <laughs> yeah. That was that was the, the most unusual study I ever did was in, in Siberia. It was that reminds me of uh, one of I love to tell stories of my old sheriff. We'd had a a robbery, well, not robbery, but a theft crew that was coming. Uh, they were from the Augusta, Georgia area, which is right on the Georgia South Carolina line, and the county in which I work is Northeast Georgia, over in the Athens area. And we had a crew that was they would steal a car in either Augusta or just across the line in South Carolina, and they would drive it to our county and how they would manage to come to our county. I don't know. And they would pull into one of our high-end subdivisions and they would go through the neighborhood at night, stealing whatever they could out of cars. And they would finally find a car with a set of keys in it. And they would steal that car and drive it back to South Carolina. And this had been going on for weeks. And so it got to be like, as soon as we got started getting in auto reports, we start looking for the South Carolina or Richmond County tag you know, park somewhere. Yeah, that's going to be our stolen vehicle. And they were doing the same thing over in South Carolina and Augusta. Well, finally, one of our guys jumps them one night. And they all scatter into the woods. And we've all come in in the middle of the night, uh, you know, searching for these guys. And I'm in the truck with the sheriff. And we are riding through a golf course that has closed, like shut down. And so the grass hasn't been cut in forever. And so it's up high enough that we're seeing like the seed heads like through the window and bouncing off the mirror. Well, this golf course was along a river and we're driving through what was probably the fairway. (laughs) Going, well, hey, Sheriff, I think we need to go back. He just keeps driving and says, Sheriff, I think we need to go back. And stop. Finally, I said, Sheriff, he stops the truck and says, What? I said, there's a river around here somewhere. Are we going to keep going until we find it? <laughs> he 
he sat there and he just looked at me and finally he puts it in reverse and we back up and drive out. <laughs> but that's the fun. That's the reason stuff like that's why you become a cop. It's yep. not about everything. It's for yep. getting into the high, crazy hijinks like that. I'll give you one more. Sure. You can call it a quit. Yeah. then Charlie Smith. Charlie was one of those guys that his creases had creases. He was always immaculate. He gets a call, loose animal. He gets there and finds out there's a monkey in the tree. It's got a, it's got a, uh, a collar around its waist. So the ladies there that called the police and, the, and they're, they got food and stuff and they, they finally coax this monkey down and the monkey, Charlie gets it and it, and it just curls up in his crook of his arm. You know, just everything's fine. He says, okay, you know, I'm taking to the station. We'll call animal control. So he gets in his car and the, the monkey just snuggles up next to him on the seat next to him. So he gets in and he's going. And uh, we didn't, didn't have a lot of cars on the, on the road. And he gets a call of an accident with injuries. And he's about a half mile away from it. And they said, yeah, we need you. We need to respond. He said, okay. So he flips on his lights and hits the siren. And this <laughs> monkey literally goes ape shit all across the front seat of his car, all over him. He's got monkey shit everywhere. <laughs> And he's trying to fight this monkey off while he's driving. That was one of the funniest things I had ever seen. That was so don't ever put the monkey in the front seat with you. Oh, there you go. There you go. We had a alpaca get loose and run down like our busiest street one day. It's just the stuff was, you just can't make up. That would that would cause some excitement. Yeah. They're going like, yeah. what the heck was that? Yeah, <laughs> you just can't make this stuff up. <laughs> had another day, uh at the agency I started with on my very last day, uh, we, we had a monkey bite somebody's finger off. Oh. And that was my going away present. Yeah. You know, from, from, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I looked at the guys like, you guys arranged this for this to be my last day. And, <laughs> I, and I guess I got to say this one more animal story is uh, emus don't respond well to being lassoed. Really? No. I, w- I can imagine. And, you know, you think about those ropes and those little skinny necks, and that yeah. didn't, that didn't that didn't go well for the for the person that lassoed the emu. Well, he actually got it lassoed. It it didn't just flip off. No, wow. he, he he managed he to lasso it? the emu. Yeah, it killed the emu because it yeah, broke his neck when, it, when it took off running. Oh yeah, yeah. So that that was a rough day. Yeah, yes, it would be. Yeah, when people come back to the office all shell shocked. What happened? Well, you yeah. know, McGillicuddy wrote an emu. That stuff just doesn't happen at the grocery store in the in the paneling. Factory. No, it doesn't. You know, it just That's doesn't true. happen there. That's true. All right. Um, I like to end each show with asking the guests if they want to honor their mentors. So, if there's any mentor that you had that you would like to particularly point out and honor, we'd love to hear that. Jeff Cooper, probably, because Jeff, Jeff, like I said, Jeff taught me a philosophy of life that I, I had no idea of before. And he, he really gave me a, a person to, to watch and to learn from on how to, how to really handle uh, situations. He, he really was good at that. He, he'd fly off the handle every once in a while, but I, we all do that from time to time. But really, as far as the philosophy of life, uh, he gave me a philosophy of life that's much, much better than I had before. I'm sure. Um, without him, uh, without Jeff Cooper, I would be Jerry McCown 
uh, you know, a college professor or something, but, but uh, because of my affiliation with, with he and Gunsight, I've had a, a lot of experiences, taught three classes in London, England, um, you know, did studies up in, in Scotland and, and all over. So it's, the affiliation there has done, has done a lot for my life. And for a guy with MC in his name, you probably had to go enjoy the Scotland trip. <laughs> yes. Yeah, my, my family immigrated from Scotland, so that's, that's one of the life goals is to make it there as well. Uh, yep. well, well, sir, I have very, very much enjoyed this conversation, and I thank you for reaching out and uh, having really enjoyed being able to talk with you tonight. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. All right. Well, thank you uh, to the audience. Uh, you know, appreciate the fact that our numbers are continuing to grow and that you are taking your time out to listen to us and or watch the videos on YouTube, whichever way you partake. And we understand that your time is your most valuable asset. So thank you for choosing to spend your time with us.